You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Afternoon, brothers and sisters. The Bible reading for today is from John chapter 4. And we're reading from the NIV. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Um, 
If it's helpful for you, uh, you can find an outline of my sermon on the welcome card that Alex mentioned earlier on the, under the Sundays tab. It'll say sermon outline. Uh, there's also a link there to the Bible passage so you can follow along as we take a look at this story about Jesus speaking to this woman at a well. Uh, there's also some Bibles floating around at the end of the rows if you'd prefer to get your hands on a, on a hard copy. But let's pray. There's been, some, been a bit of an emotional journey in today's service, so let's pray for God's help. Uh, as we seek to hear his voice in his word. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, you know uh, all the different feelings uh, that might be going through our hearts and minds. Uh, but Father, in the midst of all of that, uh, we still need to hear your voice. And so we pray that you might speak to us uh, in particular about Christ your Son and how he offers us living water to satisfy our deepest thirsts. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, I wonder if you know what it's like to be thirsty. Uh, Gabby was doing the kind of, also the G-Dog was doing the kind of physical thirst thing on the kids' spot. And I suspect that even though most of us have grown up, I suspect in the developed world, uh, where we can access fresh and clean and running. We can access that kind of fresh and clean and running water, just kind of like a, a twist of the tap. Uh, so in many ways, uh, we probably haven't experienced as much of what it's like to be physically thirsty as people in other parts of the world. But still, uh, after a long run or a day of hiking or a day of working out in the sun or a day of, I don't know, a night of sleeping all night with the air conditioner blasting in your throat or whatever it is, we know what it's like to be thirsty physically thirsty. But we also know there's deeper thirsts, don't we? Deeper desires and longings in our hearts. You might call them emotional thirsts, our thirst for love and connection and acceptance and meaning and purpose and joy. And these are the kind of thirsts that, that so often just aren't satisfied. I want to suggest that they're not satisfied because of the way God made us because of deep spiritual thirsts that we have. Uh, to paraphrase a kind of theologian from the past, his name's St. Augustine, uh, he used different words than this, but the idea is God made us for himself as the spring of living water, and so our souls will be thirsty until they're satisfied in him. God made us for himself. That's how we're wired. That's how he designed us. He, as the spring of living water, and so our souls will be thirsty until they are satisfied in him. I wonder if you know what that's like, to have deep thirsts, seemingly unquenchable, unsatisfied thirsts in your life. And to be longing for something more, to feel somehow that you hoped for so much more out of life and you constantly feel ripped off. Do you know what it's like to be thirsty? If you do, tune into today's passage, to Jesus' conversation with this Samaritan woman at a well. In this passage, we see that Jesus offers living water that will satisfy our deepest thirsts now and forever. So a kind of summary of the passage. Jesus offers living water that will satisfy our deepest thirsts now and forever. So let's take a look at the passage. First, in verses 1 to 4, uh, we've got what I've called uh, Jesus' divine appointment with a thirsty woman. Uh, so if you've got the Bible open, uh, it'd be great if you want to read along with me in verses 1 to 3. 
Uh, John says, now Jesus learned uh, that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it wasn't Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. Uh, So he left Judea uh, and went back uh, once, uh, once more to Galilee. I remember last week we had that passage about the transition between John the Baptist and Jesus. And John the Baptist said, Jesus must become greater. It's time for the spotlight to shift from me to Jesus. And here we see that that's what's happening. And the Pharisees, the, the, uh, part of the, the Jewish leaders based in Jerusalem, uh, they've heard that, that Jesus is gaining and baptising more disciples. Uh, and Jesus seems to think that, that maybe soon they might try to stifle his ministry by fanning into flame the tensions. You remember last week, there was already some tensions between John the Baptist's disciples and Jesus' disciples. Uh, so Jesus, oh, I think this is what he's thinking, he's thinking, let's get back up north. Uh, so that we kind of nip in the bud any of that tension between our followers. Uh, So he wants to leave Judea and head up to Galilee, uh, up north. And we see in verse 4, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. And on one level, that's just practical. The the journey from Judea to Samaria was a three-day walk, and the quickest way was straight through Samaria. It's just about practicalities, really. But it isn't just practicalities. Remember who Jesus is. Jesus is the Word become flesh. We saw that in John 1, verse 14. He's the one and only Son of God in human form, second person of the Trinity. So Jesus knows all things at all times. And we'll see this again later on in the passage. So he knows that in Samaria, he has what you might call a divine appointment with a particular Samaritan woman at a well. That's why he has to go through Samaria because he wants to share this wonderful news of living water with a thirsty Samaritan woman. So in verses 5 to 15, that's what Jesus does. He offers this living water to a thirsty woman. Take a look in in verses 5 and 6. We see there, so Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, uh, near a plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, uh, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey... Uh, sat down by the well, it was about noon. A Sychar, this is a village in Samaria, it's near a mountain, uh, which will be important later on, Mount Gerizim, Uh, and near, just kind of outside Sychar, there's a piece of land that uh, Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel, you can read about him in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 48, verse 22, when Jacob was dying, he gave this piece of land to his son Joseph. And on the land, there's obviously a well that centuries ago, Jacob dug out from the ground. And it's an amazing well. The word well there can also mean spring. And so this well was a well that was fed by an underground spring. So this well was a reliable source of life-giving water for Jacob's people for centuries. In a dry and arid land, this well was in an oasis a place where life and blessing and satisfaction were found. So Jesus sits down by this well, and we're told that he's tired from the journey. That's certainly not the main point of the passage. I don't want to spend lots of time on that. But just remember who Jesus is. Jesus is God himself in the flesh. And he really is in the flesh. That's kind of what John's telling us here. 
He really is human. And so when he's going on a three-day walk in a, in a hot kind of Palestinian weather, he gets tired. Right? Jesus isn't a ghost. He's not an angel. He's not some superhuman who has no idea what it's like to be a human being, no idea what it's like to be tired, exhausted, burnt out. Right? Jesus understands all of that. Right? Jesus, as tired as he was from the journey and thirsty, sat down by this world. So the story continues in verses 7 and 8. And then a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So in this culture, it was typically the women who came out to these wells to draw water. They usually carried a large water jar on their shoulders. That was much too hard work for the men. And so the women had to do that. Although they generally did it, not in the middle of the day, like this woman. Right? Notice that John tells us it's about noon, so right in the middle of the day. Typically, the women did it at dawn and dusk, when it was a bit cooler. So that's the first kind of surprising thing. In verses 7 and 8, the second surprising thing, much more surprising perhaps, is the fact that Jesus talks to this woman. He asks her a question, asks her for a drink no less. In this culture, it just was not the done thing at all for a respected Jewish man to be speaking to a woman in public. That just wouldn't happen. And yet Jesus does that. And this wasn't just any woman. She's a Samaritan woman. So take a look in verse 9. The Samaritan woman knows that Jesus is being radically countercultural in asking her for a drink. Look at verse 9. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John explains, for the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. What's this kind of deep disdain that the Jewish people had for the Samaritans. So they kind of hate them so much that they don't even want to associate with them at all, let alone share a drink with them. Well, it actually goes, it goes back centuries. A bit of a kind of history, like when the northern kingdom of Israel, you can read about this in the Old Testament, northern kingdom of Israel is conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians kick out almost all the Jewish people there, leave a few people there. Then they repopulate the area with their own people and the Assyrians and the remaining Jewish people intermarry, they form families. And in the process of all that, the Jewish people there lose their way a bit spiritually. So that they reject almost all of the Old Testament, except for the first five books. That'll come up later on too. Also, they build their own temple on that mountain that I, that I mentioned earlier, right near Sychar, there's Mount Gerizim. The, the Samaritan people build their own, own temple there rather than down in Jerusalem, going to the temple down there. Uh, so the people down south in Judea, in Jerusalem, uh, they consider themselves to, to be the kind of uh, the spiritual pure breeds, and they considered the Samaritans to be the mongrels. Right? They were the people, look, they kind of had some of the Jewish thing going on, but they'd really lost their way. They weren't a people that if you were a serious, respectable Jew, that you would associate with. Certainly not have a drink with. But you remember in this culture who you eat and drink with, especially for a Jew with all their rules around kosher food and drinks, right? It's a big deal who you eat and drink with. So what's Jesus doing? 
Right? He's being radically countercultural. But, but Jesus knows that the living water he has to offer is for absolutely everyone, no exception, including for this Samaritan woman. So look in verse 10. He offers her this water. If you knew the gift of God, Jesus says, and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The, the gift of God here, that, that refers to the essence of Christianity. Christianity isn't about stuff that we earn, a ladder to climb up to God. It's about a gift that we receive. It's about grace, something that we don't deserve. And this is the gift of salvation, the gift of being rescued, to be united with Jesus and his people. And in John's Gospel, this gift of salvation is usually described as eternal life. Right? Eternal life isn't just about going to heaven when you die. It's about a new quality of life, a new level of more satisfying life that starts now and goes on forever for everyone who believes in Jesus. Well, we've seen that already in John's Gospel. John 3.16, for example. And so the fact that receiving this gift of eternal life is so tied to believing in Jesus explains why Jesus says, if you knew who it is who asks you for a drink. He's saying, who I am is really important. You've got to nut this out. Well, the woman at this point just thinks Jesus is some strange Jewish guy at a well asking her for a drink. But little does she know she's speaking with the word made flesh. God himself in human form. God who became a human being as the Messiah, God's chosen and promised king. The one who came to sort out all the mess of the world, to bring all the blessings of heaven down to earth, to restore all things. That's who this woman is talking to. If you knew who it is who asked you for a drink, Jesus says, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. On one level, this living water is just a, a kind of really evocative, kind of poetic picture of the salvation, the gift that Jesus is offering her. Remember, she's grown up in a very dry and arid place where water was very scarce. And so imagine being offered living water, fresh, clean, water that brings life and satisfaction and blessing. But on one level, it's just a picture, a metaphor. But it's not just that. It's actually telling us something about who Jesus is. Uh, back in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 2, you should read Jeremiah chapter 2 later on, uh, but in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God says that his people Israel had committed two sins. The first sin was that they had rejected him, and he describes himself there as the spring of living water. Right? God himself is the overflowing fountain of everything good, of all life and goodness and blessing and flourishing. All of that flows out of God. Remember John 1, in him was life, and that life was the light of all men. This is Jesus. So when Jesus says that I can offer you living water, he's not just giving a kind of abstract, impersonal picture of what it means to be saved, he's giving a personal description of himself. He's saying, I am that spring of living water in human form. You can find life and blessing and satisfaction in knowing me. Anyway, in Jeremiah 2, God says, I am the spring of living water. 
And he says, my people have turned away from me and they've dug their own cisterns, their own wells, their broken wells that cannot hold water. It's a picture of what the Bible calls sin. This is what sin is. It's to turn aside from God and finding life and satisfaction and blessing in him because you think that more life and blessing and satisfaction is found elsewhere. In broken systems, broken wells, that God says cannot hold water. Not Jesus. Jesus is the spring of living water. God himself from Jeremiah 2 in the flesh offering this woman living water to satisfy her deepest thirst now and forever. But she doesn't get that. Right? Take, take a look in, in verse 11. Like Nicodemus with the kind of idea of being born again in John 3, uh, the woman says to Jesus, Sir, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his, uh, and his livestock. Well, the woman still thinks Jesus is talking about literal water. And she's like, well, wait a second, I'm the one here with a water jar, you don't have one. So how is it that you can offer me living water? Well, she doesn't know that Jesus is talking about spiritual water, supernatural water, to satisfy the thirst, not just of her body, but her soul. In this sense, Jesus is greater than Jacob, right? She says, are you greater than Jacob? Jesus says, yes. Well, he doesn't say that, but it's implied. What did Jacob do? Jacob uh, dug out a well, a wonderful thing, uh, that provided physical uh, satisfaction and life and blessing to his people for centuries. Satisfied the thirst of their bodies. That's a great thing. But it's nothing in comparison to what Jesus is offering. Jesus isn't just offering a, a glass of water for a moment to, pass, to kind of satisfy your physical thirst. He's offering, uh, he's offering living water that will satisfy the thirst of your soul, not just for a moment, but every moment of every day forever. That's what Jesus is offering. He is greater than Jacob. Oh, sorry, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus explains just how much greater the living water he offers is. So let's take a look in verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water, either the water from Jacob's well, they will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The living water that Jesus offers is better than absolutely anything else you have ever tasted or seen or experienced. To be, when you become a Christian, you're united with Jesus by faith. You come into a deep spiritual relationship with him. You're connected with him spiritually. What does that mean? It means you're connected with the spring of living water, the one who gave life to everything. And so Jesus is saying here, when you come into connection with him, the spring of living water, and then it'll be like you've got a, a permanent spring inside your soul that, that constantly wells up, giving you life and blessing and satisfaction forever into eternal life. It's a wonderful offer. 
and to have the deepest thirsts of our souls satisfied, not just for today, but forever. The woman likes the sound of it. Right, verse 15. Sir, give me this water. It seems like she's onto it, doesn't it? Give me this living water. But why does she want it? So that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back to draw water from this well, you know? There's something appealing about it. Maybe this is you. There's something appealing about the living water that Jesus offers. But you just don't quite get it yet. I pray you get it today. A part of the reason she doesn't get it is because she doesn't really understand her need for the living water that Jesus offers. And she doesn't understand how desperately thirsty she is, how parched her soul is. And so in verses 16 to 18, Jesus reveals her need for this living water. Now take a look from verse 16. Jesus says to her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands and that the man you have now is not your husband. Uh, What you have just said is quite true. So again, we see that as God himself in human form, Jesus knows everything about everything. He doesn't just know the kind of public mask that we might put on to try and impress other people. He knows the private mess that's behind that mask. That's what we see here, isn't it? Jesus has this supernatural insight into what's going on in this woman's private life. Even the shameful bits that, that she, she really would feel uncomfortable about other people knowing. Like Jesus says to her, yeah, you're right. You, you, you've gone through five husbands so far. And the man you're with now, you're living with him. You're having sex with him, no doubt. But he's not your husband either. This was particularly kind of particularly galling in this culture, with incredibly high view of marriage and the place of sex within marriage. Right, incidentally, this is why this woman is coming out to draw water in the middle of the day. The other woman in the town, women in the town, don't want a bar of her. She's been seen as going from man to man throughout the town, no doubt, kind of, kind of kind of really getting other people's noses out of joint. She's been alienated, shunned, shamed, to the point that she just doesn't want to go out there when all the other women are at the well. I'll just go in the middle of the day. I don't care how hot it is. That's this woman. And maybe you think it's a little bit harsh of Jesus to dive right into the personal details of her life, to just kind of bring it all out in the open like this. But actually, Jesus is being incredibly kind to her. Right? There's no one else there. Notice his disciples are in town getting food. It's a private conversation. And Jesus is kind enough to reveal this woman's desperate need for the living water that he offers He's saying to you, you've got no idea how thirsty you are. And what are you doing? You're going to broken cisterns. 
Right? You somehow think that the next man will satisfy you in the way that the last one didn't. That you'll find the love and intimacy and acceptance that you've always longed for. Little does she know, what does she need? She needs to know the love and acceptance of the God who made her. For God made her for himself. And her soul will be thirsty until she finds her satisfaction in him. That's what she needs. Right? Jesus is revealing her need for this living water. I wonder if you recognise your need for the living water that Jesus offers. I don't have, uh, you might you know, be surprised to know, that I don't have the supernatural insight into all of your lives like Jesus had. Uh, but I'm going to ask, what is it that you think you're thirsting for? Two-part question, what are you thirsting for? And second, how are you trying to satisfy those thirsts? For this woman, she was thirsting for love and intimacy and connection, trying to satisfy it by going from man to man throughout the town. Didn't work, right? But what about you? I wonder if some of us have a real deep thirst for control. We try to satisfy that thirst. We uh, try to control our schedule. We control our tasks. Uh, we control food. We control exercise. We control relationships. Groups of people, families. Like we, we, we desperately try to satisfy our thirst for control by controlling everyone and everything in our lives. And yet we can't satisfy it. Somehow things keep spiralling out of control, no matter how hard we cling to control. Well, why not come to Jesus, the spring of living water? Remember, we heard last week, Jesus is the one who's in control of all things. For the Father, in his great love for him, has placed everything in his hands. Jesus made all things. Everything belongs to him, including you. He is in control of everything. I reckon you'll be much more satisfied if you come to Jesus, the spring of living water, and allow him to be in control. Or maybe for you it's security. You're on this endless quest searching for security in life. Maybe, maybe it started uh, when you went to university. Why you, your degree, or maybe it was a TAFE, or whatever it was, your qualification. This is my ticket to security, because the degree leads to a job. The job leads to money. Money leads to security, doesn't it? And if you have enough money, you can buy a house. That leads to security. And if you have a house, and maybe you can have someone live with you in the house, a husband or wife. You can have kids, and all of that will lead to security. But it doesn't. You still feel insecure. So what, what, like, why don't you come to Jesus? He's the spring of living water who satisfies our deep desire for security. Later on in John chapter 10, you can read it later on, Jesus says... Uh, my people, he actually says the word sheep, but out of context. My people, they will have eternal life. None of them will perish uh, because no one can pluck them out of my hand. That's security. That's what we all long for. Not having extra money in the bank. 
Real security is knowing that you're safe and secure in the hands of the one who made you and loves you and gave his life for you on the cross and who says absolutely nothing can snatch you out of his hand. That's security that will satisfy your thirst. What is it that you're thirsting for? And how are you trying to satisfy that thirst? And frankly, why would you not come to Jesus and receive this living water that he offers? Well, in verses 19 to 26, Jesus urges the woman, calls the woman uh, to receive the living water that he offers by giving God the worship that he deserves. Take a look in, in verses 19 and 20. The woman says, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. That's at Mount Gerizim that we've talked about a couple of times. But you Jews claim that we must worship down in Jerusalem. So because Jesus has this kind of supernatural insight into her private life, that the woman thinks, well, maybe you've got some insight into other things. How about this big theological dispute uh, that's caused contention between the Jews and Samaritans for centuries? Why don't you tell me, Jesus, which is the true temple? Where is it that I can actually enter into and access God's presence? Where can I worship God rightly? Big question. What does Jesus say? Verse 21. Woman, believe me, a time is coming uh, when you will uh, worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Trust me, Jesus says, where you worship God is no longer important. What's important is how you worship God or or who you worship God through. This must have been incredibly shocking for this woman. This dispute that had been going on for centuries, Jesus burst that bubble straight up. Not important anymore. It's all about how you worship. Jesus continues in verse 22. You Samaritans, he says, worship what you do not know, uh, but we worship what we do know. We there is the Jews, for salvation is from the Jews. You Samaritans, Jesus says, don't really know the God that you worship. Now, that's not Jesus being kind of, kind of unnecessarily derogatory towards them. It's just a fact, right? If you reject kind of 95% of what someone has to say, then chances are you don't know them very well. And that's what the Samaritans have done, right? That they rejected almost all of the Old Testament. And so Jesus is saying, you don't really know the God that you're worshipping because you've rejected most of his words, Right? We Jews, on the other hand, do know the God that we're worshipping. Sure, we might, we might lose our way every now and then, but we know the God we're worshipping. And not only that, we know that salvation is from the Jews. Because listening to God's words in the Old Testament, we know that he's going to send a Jewish Messiah, his king, to bring salvation to all who believe. So the woman's starting to think, look, maybe, maybe Jesus is that Messiah. Uh, let, let, wait, let me, uh, I think I've missed a, a verse in the, uh, in the passage. Yeah, yeah verse, yeah, verse 23. What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? Let me, let me read from verse 23. 
A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. Right, well, what's important is not where you worship God, but how you worship God. Jesus says, you must worship God the Father in spirit and in truth. Which is a different way of saying, the only worship that God the Father will accept is worship that comes through Jesus, his Son. I say that because the only way to worship God in spirit is to come to Jesus. We've seen in John's Gospel already, it's Jesus who baptises people in the Holy Spirit, isn't it? John the Baptist made a big thing about that. It's Jesus who gives the Spirit so that we can be born again, John 3. And our spirits can worship the God who is Spirit. So the only way to worship God who is Spirit is to come to him through Jesus who gives the Spirit. Likewise, the only way to worship God in truth is to come to him through Jesus because Jesus is the true revelation of God. Like God is spirit, how do we know who God is, what he's like? Well, it's Jesus, the word of God, the definitive revelation of God. So the only way to worship God in spirit and in truth is to come to him through Jesus, his son. That's what it means. This is the true worship that God the Father seeks. This is the way, in a sense, that we receive the living water that Jesus offers. And Jesus says, this is starting right now. It's not just a future thing. It's starting right now with my coming. The woman now is starting to get it, isn't she? Verse 25. I know that Messiah, uh, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. It's interesting he'll explain everything to us. What's Jesus just done? Well, he's just explained the woman's private life. Let me tell you what's going on. Now he's just explained the the big theological controversy. And so you can see that the wheel's turning in the Samaritan woman's mind. I'm expecting someone to come, the Messiah, who's going to be able to explain everything. And you're starting to tick some boxes, Jesus. Maybe Jesus is the Messiah. And so in verse 26, Jesus declares that he is. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus offers living water that satisfies our deepest thirsts both now and forever. Maybe one last question we need to explore. And that is, how is it that people like this woman are good enough to be a part of God's people and receive this living water. She's done some pretty, some pretty shameful things in her life. Surely she, hasn't, she, surely she doesn't deserve to receive this living water that brings life and blessing and, and satisfaction. But actually, there's another question, which is, how is it that people like you and I are good enough to receive this living water? Because sure, we might scrub up okay and put on a good public mask. But the reality is, if Jesus was here today and we went round and he gave a private word of knowledge about what was going on in each of our lives, there'd be a bit of mess that we wouldn't want other people to know about. How is it that we are good enough 
to receive this living water. Surely we deserve to, to be rejected and judged by God. We rejected him. Why shouldn't he reject us? And the answer is we do deserve those things. But God is good and gracious and merciful beyond belief. And at the very end of John's Gospel, Jesus, the spring of living water, bears the judgment that we deserve in our place. In John 19, verse 34, you can look it up later, John 19, verse 34, the Roman soldiers who have crucified Jesus, they come to Jesus and they pierce his side with a sword. And John, who's writing his gospel, tells us specifically that out of Jesus' side came a sudden flow of blood and water. Why does John conclude that? It's to tell us, to assure us, that Jesus bore every last bit of the judgment that we deserve in our place on the cross. Jesus, the spring of living water, was pierced on the cross so that if we trust in his blood which flowed on the cross in our place for our sins, then what we receive is a flow of living water that will satisfy our deepest thirsts both now and forever. This is amazing love, amazing offer. We don't receive this water because we're good enough, because we deserve it, because we've earned it, but simply because God is so good and Jesus is so loving. On the cross, Jesus experienced the thirst that we deserve so that through faith in him, we can experience the living water that he offers. Now let me pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this uh, story uh, about our Lord Jesus. Uh, we pray that uh, we would come to him either for the first time or the umpteenth time, uh, that we would come to him this day and receive the wonderful living water that he offers, uh, knowing that it is only in knowing him uh, that the deepest thirsts of our souls will be satisfied. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.